0: Well, welcome back as we continue our studies in Deuteronomy. We're getting very close to the end. And this week we find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Um, This Torah portion is only one chapter long. It's called Ha'atzinu. And the entire chapter, except for a few verses at the end, is the Song of Moses, this amazing, amazing song that is so jam-packed with insights. And so... um, uh, some of these things i 'll be sharing with you, I shared with our congregation during our era of Yom Kippur service just uh, a few days ago and uh, but in this teaching i 'm going to take those but fill them out more and uh, and draw out some some insights here that I find just truly amazing. The song of moses we this is mentioned. Uh, At the end of Revelation, very close to the end, and if you're a messianic believer, this is probably one of your favorite uh, sayings. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant or bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And um, we we love to quote this because the song of Moses, this uh, elicits thoughts about the Torah, about the commandments, about the Hebrew scriptures. And then the Song of the Lamb, of course, is about Yeshua. And we see that the Song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the, the Song of the Lamb are being sung together as if they're a duet. And, uh, and so we see there's no conflict between the two. They belong together. And uh, we see that at the end of Revelation that these songs are sung together. It's a beautiful picture. But there are some questions about what is the Song of Moses? What is it about? And, uh, and who is the they that are or who are, are singing this song? Who are they? So we want to answer this question, and several others will be asking as we go. Now, if you think back over the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness, we see here that at the end of the 40 years they are singing this Song of Moses, or at least we find it recorded there near the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of the 40 years. But if you recall, back at the beginning of the 40 years in the wilderness, there was a song there as well. Do you remember which song that was? It's found in Exodus chapter 15, and it's the Song of the Sea. As soon as they crossed the Red Sea, they were so relieved and so joyful because Egyptians had been destroyed and uh, God had parted the waters, brought them across, this incredible rescue God had performed for them. And so they broke out in song. And that song is recorded in Exodus chapter 15. This is what it looks like. This is just a portion of it from the Torah scroll. And as you can see, it's written in a very odd fashion. Uh, What you have is you have a part of the line on the right and then you have a part of the line on the left. Then when you go down you've got a chunk on the right, a chunk in the middle, and then the last chunk over on the left. And then you've got two sections and then you've got three sections and then two and three and two and three all the way through the Song of Moses, and um, a very well-known part of the song—I'm sorry, Song of the Sea—very well-known part of that is Mi Be be'elim aronai, Mi, Mi ne'dar Bakodesh, Norata hilot ose fele. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? And we sing this, and uh, but that comes from the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15. So why is it written this way? Well, the theory is, according to the rabbis, it's written this way, so it looks like courses of brick or stone and a wall. And you know how in a brick wall, the the bricks don't stack directly on top of each other, but they're staggered. So a brick will, will cover two bricks. It'll overlap two bricks, and so it's made to look like courses of stone or courses of brick in a wall. Why? Because in the Song of Moses, it tells us that the water stood as walls on each side of the Israelites as they crossed the Red Sea. But going back to our, our graphic here, they sang the Song of the Sea when they crossed the Red Sea 40 years earlier, and now God gives them the Song of Moses. And they sing the song of the sea because they just crossed the Red Sea. And I need to go back to my pen. They just crossed the Red Sea. So let's let that represent water of the Red Sea. Now here at the end of the 40 years, Moses is about to die. And then what happens next? Joshua will take them across the Jordan River. And if you recall they crossed the Jordan River on dry land once again, as they did 40 years ago, coming out of Egypt to cross the Red Sea. But what happened right before they left Egypt to cross the Red Sea? What did they do? They were in their homes, and they had the very first Passover. So I'll draw a goblet here, and uh, filled with red wine. And then what did they do 40 years later With the song of Moses crossing the Jordan River, what was the next thing they did as Joshua took them over? We find in Joshua chapter 5, I think it's around verse 10, we're told, while the people of Israel were encamped in Gilgal, that's on the other side of the Jordan River, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Do you see a pattern here? It's a menorah pattern, isn't it? You see the song, correspond to the song, the crossing of the water on dry land. You see the Passover Seder. It's a menorah pattern. And of course, we find menorah patterns throughout the scripture. And there's even one more item. I'll leave it up to you to figure out what it is. There's another item that took place before the Seder here, much earlier, uh, maybe a year earlier. And something took place up here at the time of this Seder as well. But you can figure that one out on your own. So, the Song of the Sea, this this wonderful, this magnificent poem in Exodus 15. But we want to talk about Ha'atzinu, the Song of Moses. Now, the Song of Moses is written in a different way. And again, here is a photo from our Torah scroll. So let me explain what's going on with this. Up here at the top in this section, this is the end of the previous Torah portion, Vayelik," in Deuteronomy chapter 31. And then Ha'at-Zinu begins right here. It's a poem and there's the first word, Ha'at-Zinu. Now chapter 31 ends with uh, V'deber Moshe Bozne Kol Kahal Yisrael. And he spoke. Who did? Moshe did. But Ozne, been in the ears. And that's where we get the word, ha'atzinu, which means give ear. Then over here it says, shema, here. Give ear and here. And so Moshe, he rehearsed the, uh, the, the words of this song and the ears of Kahal Yisrael. Kahal, as you know, is the word that should be translated church. It's the exact equivalent of the word ecclesia. There's the word Kahal there. And what did he put in their ears? Et divrei hashira, the words of the shira. A shira is a song. We're going to be looking at this Hebrew word a little bit later on. It's, it's amazing how it's constructed. Hashira hazot, this shira, ad-tumam, until the end, until the completion. So, on the Torah scroll, a line is then skipped, and we begin the poem. Now, the way the poem works is you have a line on the right, and then it's completed on the line on the left, and in a printed Bible, you've got a colon at the end. That means that's the end of a sentence. Instead of using a period mark in Hebrew, they use a colon. That indicates an end of a sentence. When you go down to the next line, you, you read what is on the right, and then you read what is on the left, and then you read what is on the right, then you read what is on the left, and when you get to that point, we then have another colon, an end of a sentence. And then we continue on with the next line, and then on the right, on the left, and then there's another colon. And so what we find is either there's one line, right and left, or two lines, right and left, right and left, but the colons always end up along this left-hand margin. So all of the sentences, the verses, end on the left until a certain point, which we'll explain in a moment. Um, Just a couple other highlights here. We see here... Um, it says that, Kishim Adonai Ekra, with, in the name of Adonai I will call out. And the word, uh, the name Adonai, Yadhe Vavhe, occurs eight times in this song. And eight, as we know, is the number of, of new life and new beginnings. Well, I want to point out something very odd to you. It's right down here. There's a large letter He right here at the beginning of verse 6. Beginning of verse 6. It's not a word. It's just the letter Hey written oversized standing there all by itself. Why is this here? Well, let's read the first few verses and, we'll, and then when we get to verse 6, we'll explain why this letter Hey is there. So we begin in verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and may the earth hear the sayings of my mouth. May my teaching drop like the rain, may my utterance flow like the dew. Like storm winds upon vegetation and like raindrops upon blades of grass. Verse 3, when I call out the name of Adonai, ascribe greatness to our God. By the way, that commandment to ascribe greatness to our God is why at the end of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We always say, Baruch Shem Kavod, Malkuto le'olam vo'ed. We ascribe greatness to his name. And we say, uh, Baruch Shem Kavod, blessed is the glorious name of his kingdom, or the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. So the reason we add that is because of this phrase, ascribe greatness to our God. When? When I call out the name of Adonai. so That's why we do that. Verse 4, the rock. The word rock is found many times in this scripture, in this poem. Most of the time it's the word zur, which is like a foundation rock, a massive rock. And uh, it's eight or nine, ten times, I forget. But all through this, this poem, which describes Israel's shakiness, God is referred to as a rock. In fact, in one place in the poem, it talks about how the, the heathens, the, the Gentiles, Look at, the Israel, look at Israel, they say, our rock isn't like your rock. But you guys don't even notice it. So it's kind of amazing that the surrounding peoples can see something that Israel seemed to miss. Verse 4, the rock, perfect is his work, for all his paths are justice, a God of faith without iniquity, righteous and fair. Is he. corruption is not his, the blemish is his children's, a perverse and twisted generation. And then verse 6, and we see this letter hey right here. The letter hay, if you know any Hebrew, you you know it's just a, it's like the letter H. And the rabbis say, this is God's sign. The blemish is not his, the blemish is his children's. They're a twisted, perverse generation. A sign. And God goes on to describe some of the issues Israel has, or had at that time at least. He says, remember, in verse 7, or let's finish verse 6, is he not your father? And this is the very first time in the scriptures where God is referred to as a father. It's very important. Is he not your father, your purchaser, your buyer? Has he not created you and established or it could be protected you? Remember the days of age, the days of yore. Understand the years of generation after generation. Ask your father. He'll relate it to you and your elders, they'll tell you. When the Supreme One gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the children of man, he set the borders of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. How many... How many Jewish people came out of Canaan to settle in Egypt? If you recall, it's back in uh, the closing chapter of Genesis. And uh, it's Genesis, well, not the closing chapter, but near the end. It's chapter 46, verse 27. tells us there were 70, 70 souls that descended into Egypt, 70 Jews. How many nations are there? If you go back to Genesis chapter 10... And you count up the number of nations that descended from from Noah's three sons, Shem Ham and Japheth, you'll find that there are seventy nations. Why are there seventy nations? Because there are seventy children of Israel who came from from Jacob and settled in Egypt. Verse nine For Adonai's portion is his people. Jacob is the measure of his inheritance. And it goes on and begins to talk about All the things that God had provided Israel. Look at verse 10. He discovered him in a desert land and desolation, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He granted him discernment. He preserved him like the pupil of God's eye, like the pupil of his eye. How protective are you of the pupils of your eye? That's how protective God is of his people Israel. This is why anti-Semitism is so hateful to God, because when you exercise and practice anti-Semitism, it's like poking God in the aisle. He's not going to put up with that. He was like an eagle arousing its nest, hovering over its young. Yerachef is the word for hovering. The first time we see that word Yerachef in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And where it says, the Spirit of God, Merach, He hovered over the waters. And as we see the Spirit of God hover, hovering over the waters as He begins to restore the creation over six days, we see God like an eagle hovering over His young, over the, 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 the children of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their kids. Because He's creating something new through them spreading its wings and taking them, carrying them on its pinions. Adonai alone guided them, and no other god was with them. He would make him ride on the heights of the land and have him eat the ripe fruits of the field. He would suckle him with honey from a stone and oil from a flinty rock, butter of cattle, milk of sheep, fat of lambs, rams born in Bashan, and he goats with wheat as fat as kidneys. And you would drink blood of grapes, like delicious wine. So he lists these ten wonderful, fruitful blessings. But then something really weird happens. In verse 15, remember how I mentioned how the verses always end over here on the left side? When you get to verse 15, it shifts. The verses become offset. They lose their balance and they begin to end over here on the right side. So if you look at a, a Hebrew Bible that's printed, that has punctuation, you'll see all these, these, uh, these colons that indicate the end of a verse. You'll see them all shifting over here to the right column. And it will continue doing that all the way up through verse, verse uh, 39. The verse, verse 39, ends with a colon once again over on the left side. But verses 15 up to 39, God describes how Israel has rebelled. Now think about this. I call this the curse of blessings. It's not my phrase, but I use it. Um, The curse of blessings, which sounds very odd, but you know what? We do not handle blessings very well. We're very much like Adam and Eve, who were surrounded by paradise, by every good thing, by complete and utter blessing and beauty and utopia. But how did they handle it? They decided they wanted more. When the enemy came along, he suggested they could have more. And so all these blessings, instead of being grateful for them and being obedient to God, They went for more. We do the same thing. So God is is like a catch-22. He wants to lavish blessings on us. He loves to bless his kids, just like you love to bless your children. But when you bless your children, they tend to get spoiled. And you want to give them the world. But when you give them things, they don't handle it well. And so the blessings have built into them this thing that where it triggers us to want more, to become selfish and become self-centered, become proud. And uh, it happened with Israel. It happened with Adam and Eve. It happens with us. If we could be truly humble and grateful people, then we could handle blessings more. I love blessings, but um, I want to stay as humble as I can. I never want to let God's blessings become the focus of my attention and my adoration and affection. I want him to be the focus of that. And if I can make him the continual focus of my life, he can continue adding blessings to me without them ruining me. But the key is in my hand. Whether I will let those blessings turn my heart away from God to where I become spiritually obese and become self-centered, and become kind of useless. So this Song of Moses needs to be a very stern warning to all of us, because God does bless us in so many ways. Well, anyways, we could go on working through the Song of Moses, but um, I want to point out something that's very odd. If you go back to the previous chapter, chapter 31, um, Moses is told, now therefore... Write this song. Write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips in order this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. A couple verses later, it says So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught to the sons of Israel. Then you go on down a few more verses, then Moses spoke the words of the song. He spoke the words in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel until they were complete. Then in verse 44, the Moses came and spoke all the words of the song in the hearing of the people, he with Joshua, the son of Nun. You see a problem? You see something kind of odd? The song isn't sung. Nowhere in Deuteronomy do you see them singing the song. Nowhere in Joshua or Judges or all through the Tanakh you never see the song of Moses sung. And then you come to the Gospels. Song of Moses isn't sung there. You don't see it sung in Acts or in Paul's writings. In fact, not until you get to Revelation near the end in chapter 15 do we read, And they sang the Song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the Song of the Lamb. It's almost they couldn't sing the song, they could write it, they could memorize it, they could recite it, but they couldn't sing it until the Song of the Lamb came to join it. It's almost as if the Song of Moses is the lyrics, but the Lamb provides the music. And who is the they who sing the song of Moses and the song of the lamb who are these people so there's a number of questions why hasn't the song of Moses why wasn't the song of Moses sung who will sing the song of Moses and when who is the they and when is it that they sing the song of Moses what is the song of the lamb what is the difference between these two songs so these are some important questions that i want to address in the time that we have left in the teaching So let's begin with, what is the Song of the Lamb? Let's start with that. And we find the Song of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 8 through 14. I've broken this up into three sections because we see three groups of beings singing. It's like they each have their part to sing, their stanza. And then they're joined by the next group, and they sing. Then the next group joins them in the, in the singing. And this is what it says. Now, let's give some background. In Revelation chapter 5, we are taken into the throne room of God. And it describes the throne room uh, in chapter 4, and they're around the throne, uh, uh, four living creatures, and they're described there. Um, there are 24 elders. Who these 24 elders are, we don't know. They're, it's assumed we know who they are. Maybe they're the, the 12 heads, the 12 sons of, of Jacob, the 12 uh, heads of the tribes of Israel, and the 12 apostles. I don't know. But uh, we'll know someday. But they're surrounded by these 24 elders. And it describes this amazing scene. And it says that in the hand of the one sitting on the throne, this is the Father, this is God sitting there. There's a scroll. And it's written on the front and the back, and it's sealed up with seven seals along the edge. These seals, in ancient documents, in legal documents, the seals would describe who um, can open it. What are the qualifications a person must meet before they can open this document? And this document, we know, is the title deed to earth, to heaven and earth, to the entire creation. And, uh, and John said that, uh, that there was a voice that says, Who is worthy to come and take the scroll and open its seals? And he says, There is no one. There was no one found who was worthy to open the the, the scroll. And he says, I wept bitterly, because John knew what this document was. And he was weeping, he was brokenhearted, because who is it who can meet these standards described on the seven seals to open the scroll and reclaim the earth, reclaim the creation? And then a voice said to John, don't weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He says, I turned around and I saw a lamb as if it had been slain. And then the lamb was able to go and take the scroll and open it. Of course, this lamb is Messiah, the lamb who was slain but yet lives. So, when he takes the scroll and begins to open it, this is what we find. Revelation 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, it's actually a scroll, the four living creatures... And the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the Holy Ones. Our prayers are like incense to God. And they sang. So we see some singing taking place. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, who's the you? The Lamb, Messiah, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation people from the entire world he redeemed and ransomed everyone on earth and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth so who's singing the four living creatures the 24 elders but they're not singing the song of Moses. But then we see in verse 11 a new group join in the chorus. Then I looked and heard round the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is who the Lamb, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now the angels have joined in on this song of the Lamb. Then verse 13, And I heard every creature. Now this word creature is the word katisma. It's only used four times in the Greek scriptures. This is the last time it's used. And I've put in your notes the other three places it's used. But when we see this word used, it's not really referring to human beings. Uh, In one place, I believe it's in Timothy, it talks about how we are the first fruits of, uh, the, of the resurrection. Let me just go ahead and read it for you. Uh, it's in uh, 1 Timothy 4.4. 4, for everything created, every katisma, every created thing by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. It is received with gratitude. That is not referring to people. It's referring to every created thing that is good. James 1.18. And the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth. So that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures, his creation. So here he's using people kind of an as-it-were sort of thing because Yeshua is going to restore the entire creation. He says, but he's, he's giving us as the first fruits of what he's going to do with the whole creation. And then in Revelation 8 and 9, And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. These aren't people. Okay? It's creatures in the sea. So this word katisma is not really used directly of people. It's used of the creation. So we hear the entire creation, the fish, the birds, the animals, the trees, the mountains, the rocks, the rivers, the oceans, they're all joining in the chorus. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So we see the four creatures, we see the 24 elders, we see all the angels, we see all the creation, all joined into the song, singing the song of the Lamb. But where are the people? Because over in chapter 15 it says, and they, who are the they, were singing... The song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Who are the they? Well, let's go over and find out who they are. So from chapter 6 on through chapter 14, we see a lot of things happening. and The scene jumps back and forth between heaven and earth, and all the things happening here in the physical realm because of things happening in the spiritual realm. But in Revelation 15, we once again find ourselves in the throne room. And John says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. These are conquerors we see here. These are the courageous. These are the victors. And he saw that, he says, I saw them standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God. Remember, we saw the, uh, the, earlier, we saw the 24 elders, I believe it was, with the harps of God, as they sang, with the harps of God in their hands. And they, they, who? The conquerors over the beast and his image and the number of his name, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So they join in the chorus of the Lamb, but they bring this other song along with them, the song of Moses. And they're saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. How do we know God's ways? Through the Torah of Moses. That's how we know your ways, God's ways. O King of the nations, again, The whole world is in view. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship. The whole world will come and worship. will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So who is the they who sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb? The conquerors, the courageous, the ones who have overcome. Now you may be wondering, well, I'm not sure if I can be one of those because it's talking about the beast. Isn't that the Antichrist and its image? What is the image of the beast described in Revelation? And this number of its name, which seems to correspond to the mark that people who worship the image of the beast will take and, and, uh, and they'll, they'll show their allegiance to the beast and his lies. And they'll say, what if I'm not alive during that time? Can't I join in this course? May I suggest that as John says, the spirit of Antichrist is already here. We're already at war against the beast. And though he may not have taken on a physicality that we can see in the whole world, you can see on TV, the spirit of Antichrist, John tells us, is already here. We are already at war with him. In fact, this war started way back in the Garden of Eden because a beast appeared in the garden. Adam and Eve did not see the serpent as a beast. They saw him as this glorious dragon because that is what he is. He's called a dragon in Revelation, the dragon from of old. And, um, and he was awe-inspiring. He was beautiful. He was he's called in the prophets the most beautiful of all God's created beings. He must have been amazing. To look at him and his magnificence must have just been jaw-dropping. So the beast came to Adam and Eve there in the garden. And his image was one that was awe-inspiring and, 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 and would something would inspire fear in you. And what's this mark? What's this number? Well, I'm not sure what it is in Revelation exactly, but I do know it's something that mars the person who takes it. It scars them and marks them as now belonging to the beast. And you know, I think all of us have scars from times that we decided to give ourselves to the enemy rather than to God. You might have physical scars in your body. You might have emotional scars. may have both spiritual scars. You may have memories that just keep coming back, that come back just to nag you and to torment you. So I think all of us have had our brushes with the beast and his lying, deceitful image, and have been marked by him and scarred by him. So I don't think we have to wait for some future event to enter into this battle. I believe we're in the thick of it right now. And if we conquer, if we win, if we're courageous, and if we're victorious, we will be the ones, we're the human beings who get to join in to the song, to sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, the song of the Lamb that the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the angels, and the whole creation will sing. We get to join in. But here's a question. Why don't these, these uh, heavenly creatures and the creation get to sing the Song of Moses? How come it's only these people? Well, I can give you one hint. The Song of Moses involves the Torah, and the Torah was given for people to obey. It's filled with commandments and instructions and stories for people to obey, people who were in the battle people who must choose, have free will to choose to follow God or to not follow God. And if we choose to follow the Torah that was given to us through Moses, then we get to sing the Song of Moses. We're the only ones who get to sing the Song of Moses. And I don't know if if these heavenly creatures are capable of jealousy. But if they are, they would be tempted to be jealous of us who so get to sing also this song. And God have mercy on us for us ever looking at his commandments as being burdensome, saying, well, I don't have to do that. Well, you don't have to sing the song of Moses either. But I want to be part of this chorus. Now, I don't look at something the commandments as something I have to do, but it's something I want to do because they bring glory to God They bring healing to the world. They bring blessing and joy and fulfillment into my life. Who wouldn't want to keep his commandments? They're the best way to live. They are what I was created to do. And they are my purpose. So why wouldn't we want to to keep the Torah? So why wasn't the song of Moses sung until now? I think The lamb is the one who supplies the melody to the lyrics. That's just a thought. You don't have to agree. Maybe these are two songs that we sing as a duet. But there's something about the Torah and something about Yeshua that are complementary to one another, and I see them almost like lyrics and melody. Let me explain. The lyrics were given through Moses. Words And let's understand something about lyrics. When a lyricist, you know, there are, there are musicals by Rodgers and Hammerstein. Hammerstein wrote the lyrics, Rodgers wrote the music. There are musicals written by George and Ira Gershwin. Uh, Ira Gerson wrote the lyrics, and his brother George wrote the music. And then there are musicals by Lerner and Lowe. One wrote the music, one wrote the lyrics. I don't know which. But the lyrics, lyrics are always static. Static means they don't move. They're like something that's built, and it stays put, and you don't mess with it. And we're told in the Torah, you don't add to the Torah, you don't take away from the Torah. And Yeshua says, not one jot, not one tittle is lost from the Torah, until everything's fulfilled. In other words, forever, it stays the way it is. The moment you change a word in a lyric, you've destroyed the work of the poet the work of the lyricist. You don't mess with it, it's his. If you change it, it's not his lyrics anymore. So we don't mess with the black and white, the words of the Torah. Now, translations are a different thing because translations are all imperfect. But when you come to the original Hebrew, you don't mess with it. It's exactly perfect the way it is. To add to it or to take away, it's no longer perfect. But it's static, it's black and white. It's like in stone, you don't change it, it's static. Now the melody on the other hand, the melody comes through Yeshua. When Yeshua came and we look at his life and his words and how he dealt with situations and answered questions, you see him always following the lyrics perfectly but he brings this dynamism to it. He brings us joy into it. He brings a sense of humor into it. And there's insights and wisdom, and you can never quite tell how he's going to apply the Torah, but he does it with such beauty and grace and perfection. And the melody is dynamic. The melody is dynamic. So let me take an example here. We're going to take a song we all know. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, which is actually a poem written by Jane Taylor. I think she lived in England. Uh, She lived from 1783 to 1824. We all know the words, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Up above the world so high, like a diamond in the sky, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. There you go. And there are other verses. But the moment I change one of those words, I have ruined her work. It's not her work anymore. The words are static. I can't mess with them. But I can take Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star, and I can hum the melody. We all know the melody. I can hum it. I can whistle it. Play it on the piano. Someone can play it on the trombone. You can play it fast. You can play it slow. You can play it in any key. You can play it through a a, a full 100-piece symphonic orchestra. You can have a choir sing it. You can teach your parrot to sing it. And the melody still stays the melody. You You can share the melody in all these dynamic and amazing, incredible ways, and it's still the melody. You change one word, and you've messed with it. You've ruined it. You know... One of the the greatest composers of all time was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. lived from 1755 to 1791. And and he took a a French song, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of this, but the tune is what we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That is a French tune that we always tend to put this poem, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, to. And he did this amazing thing in typical Mozart style. So I'm going to do something a little out of the ordinary this morning. Uh, what Mozart did back in 1781, and he, he took this melody that we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and he played it. And this is what it sounded like. Okay, we all know it. Very familiar. All right. So, then what he did after that is he wrote twelve variations of that melody. Here you just heard him playing it straight. Well, it wasn't him, but it was. It's actually uh, Long Long playing this, and. Uh, uh, but he then wrote 12 variations where he just took the same melody and you'll recognize the melody. But listen to what he does to it. Because this melodies are dynamic. Listen to what he does. Here's the first variation. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are up above the world so high Okay, here's number three. Same melody. Twinkle, twinkle little star How I wonder what you are Here's number five. Here's number seven. Not quite as recognizable, is it? And number 11. Almost completely unrecognizable, but the melody is still there. Little star. How I wonder what you are. (laughs) That's what you call genius. And of course, those are samples of just a few, but there are 12 entire variations of this. But always the same melody. Sometimes more recognizable, sometimes less. But the melody is always there. You know, there's an important lesson here for us. I meet people who are believers from all different denominations and various Christian religions. And, and um, they are all variations on a theme And if they have a real relationship with Yeshua, even though they may be apostolic Pentecostal, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Messianic, conservative Baptist, liberal Baptist, if they have a relationship with Yeshua, and if I look at their lives enough and really get to know them, I detect the melody of Yeshua in their lives. Sometimes it's more recognizable than others, but the melody's there. Now there are some people I know who can quote the lyrics, they can quote the verses, but they don't know the melody. They don't know it at all. And that dynamism is missing from their lives. You might call this dynamism God's spirit. And, um, and God gives us freedom to share the melody of who Yeshua is using our gifts, using our abilities, using our experiences, using our failures and successes, using our points of view and He asks us to bring all of these into play, whatever instruments we have, to perform the melody. And the melody is going to sound a little different with each one, but all together we make this chorus, we make a symphony playing the melody that is known as Yeshua, the Lamb. The song of the Lamb is something that oozes out of our lives, out of our attitudes, it should shoot out of our eyes this dynamic living thing, this melody that we can express in so many different ways, but it's still the song. Just as in all of these variations of Mozart's, you can still hear the melody, sometimes as clear, sometimes not as clear. We want the melody to be clear through us. And we don't want to use the melody to pump ourselves up and say, look how I sing the melody, because then it becomes very immelodious. That's a word. It is now, I guess. But um, knowing the lyrics is one thing. We have to have the lyrics. We don't mess with the lyrics. We don't mess with the word, with the scriptures. But the way we live it out, God gives us some freedoms there. And let's be careful criticizing one another because you don't sing the melody exactly the way I sing the melody. If the melody is recognizable, then let's encourage them to continue to sing the Song of the Lamb. I don't think the voices of the four living creatures, one of them looked like a flying eagle and one looked like a lion, one looked like a man and one looked like a calf, Those all make very different sounds, but they're singing the song of the Lamb. What did they sound like? And then the 24 elders, 24 different voices singing. And then millions and millions of angels, Do they all sound the same. And then the creation, the the fish and the animals and the birds and the rocks and the trees, all singing, clapping their hands. The melody would have sounded very different, yet still be the same melody with all of them. So... Let's give some freedom as people to express Messiah through their lives. Let's do the melody as clearly as we can, yet not mess with the lyrics and never substitute the lyrics and think that's enough without the melody. When Yeshua came along, it says he fulfilled the Torah, it means it was realized through him. Truth came through Moses. Uh, I'm sorry, the Torah came through Moses, it says in the first chapter John, but grace and truth were realized through Yeshua. In other words, he didn't come to set the Torah aside. He says, let me tell you how the melody goes. Let me sing it for you. And boy, it came to life when Yeshua lived out these lyrics. So, I want to show you something I think is amazing in the Hebrew they're singing the song of the Lamb, and here at the top we see the word se, se, which means Lamb. It's pronounced s-e-h. Se, Lamb. But recognize this word below it. We saw it up earlier in the in the picture of the scroll of Ha'atzinu. This is the word shira, which means song. Now compare the two words. You notice that the first letter of lamb is the same as the first letter of song, and the last letter of lamb is the same as the last letter of song. In other words, the lamb is the context for the song. The "Se" is the context for the, the shira. But it doesn't end there. If you look at the last three letters of the word shira, it spells the verb yara, and many of you will recognize this verb. Yara means to shoot and hit the mark, to hit the bullseye. We know that sin is missing the mark, but yara means to hit the mark. And it's from this word, Yara, that we derive the word, Torah. See why Hebrew is so much fun? It has a dynamism of itself. Underneath the scriptures, the language itself is filled with the Song of Messiah. And this is why I think David prayed in Psalm 119, Lord, unveil my eyes that I may behold wonders from your Torah. And um, so you can look at this and, and study it more on your own, but I kind of summarize it this way. The lamb, the se, is the context for the song, the shira, which celebrates hitting the mark, yara, which is the purpose for the Torah. And they're all found together there. I'm going to close with this. We have one question left. If the four living creatures and the 24 elders and all the angels and all the creation are singing the song of the Lamb, and then the the conquerors and the victorious come along, and these are the, the winners. These are the ones who have given their life to God to be his people, and they're singing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb together. What do the rest of the people sing? Those who are not victorious. The ones who missed the mark, that didn't give their lives to God. They have a part to sing as well. And the clue to what they sing is found in Ha'at-Zinu. It's found in verse 43, where God speaks, he says, O nations, Sing the praises of his people. Isn't that amazing? That the people who overcome, who give their lives to God to be his bondservants, they get to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. They have a double privilege. And the people who failed didn't quite make it, they're all redeemed. Yeshua came to save the world but the bride are the ones who overcome the ones who show courage and faith now they're the victors they're the ones who who choose to see through the deception of the image of the Beast to conquer the Beast to not be uh, scarred by him or at least to let their scars become trophies to give their scars to the Lord and not be owned by the Beast and so they take their courage and their faith and their joy and they devote themselves to God to be his people. They get to sing the, two songs, the song of Moses and the Lamb. They have the melody and they have the lyrics all together. But the rest of the world, God says, I'm not going to leave you out. You're going to sing the praises of my people. That's incredible. That's, in, that's amazing to me. So everybody's singing. Everybody's singing. Nobody's left out. The last thing I want to finish with is this. The very first word of Ha'atzinu, the Song of Moses, the very first word is the word Ha'atzinu, which means give ear. From the word ozen, ear. And in Revelation 15, we're told they sing the song, of, the song of Moses, the servant of God. And some translations translate that, the bond servant of God. Remember about the bondservant? I think it's back in Exodus chapter 20. Don't hold me to that. But in Torah portion, Mishpatim, when Moses begins to give these commandments... The very first one is about the bond servant who has fulfilled his term of indenturement and his master says, okay, you've, you've fulfilled your term. You're free to go now. But this servant says, I love my master. I'm not going to leave. I want to live in your house forever. And it says his master will take him to the door or to the mezuzah, the doorpost. And he will put his ear there and he'll take an awl and drive it through his ear into the doorpost and says, and that servant will belong to his master forever. It left a spot of blood on that doorpost about where we attach the mezuzah on our homes. And there'd be a hole for the rest of his life in that bondservant ear as a sign that I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I belong to someone else. I've given my ear to my master. I've given my obedience to my master because there's no other way I'd rather live than to live in his house, doing his will, bringing pleasure to him. So this first word of the Song of Moses, ha adzinu, give ear, reminds me of that. And the fact that in Revelation 15, It doesn't say they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. It says they sing the song of Moses, the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb. But when you go to the very last word of the song of Moses, it's the word Amo, which means his people. Am is people, Amo is his people, God's people. Who are God's people? The people who give themselves to God. They give their ear to him. They hear what he says, and they give him, give him their obedience. So the whole message of the song, the whole message of this whole message is found in the first and last words of this amazing song of Moses. At our Yom Kippur service yesterday morning, we sang a song make me what you will. It's a beautiful song. It's a very nice chorus. We sing it often. And uh, as we were standing there singing the song yesterday, it went through my mind and I shared it with uh, the community. It went through my mind, well, God didn't make me the way he wants. He assigned my gender and my my height, not necessarily my weight. I have a lot to do with that. But he gave me the abilities he chose to give me, withheld the abilities he chose to withheld. He assigned my my eye color and my shoe size and and all the, the different things he's given me. He did make me according to his will, right? So why do we sing, make me according to your will? Make me as you will. It's almost like God made us physically and put our souls in us just the way he wanted and he gives us freedom and free will and we really enjoy what he's done. But he comes along and says, but I'm not finished. I've made you what I wanted to make you, but there's more work to do. But I need your permission to finish the job. So if you'll give me your ear, You'll give me your obedience. You'll live here in my house with me learn my ways. I'll finish what I started. And what I did in your body and in your, your soul and mind, I'm going to finish out. I'm going to bring to fullness to make you in my image. And then we're going to sing together." What an amazing song we have. What an amazing passage. This, this one chapter Deuteronomy 32 is so full of of teaching for us. So I hope you'll take this to heart. It's a blessing to you the way it's been a blessing to me this week. So questions, if you're in your groups or by yourself, here's some questions for you. Discuss the lyrics of the Song of the Lamb found back in Revelation 5. What new insights do you find? We didn't take much time to go over the details of what the lyrics are saying. So go over that and see what new insights you discover. And also look at the, the people who are singing the song. You've got the four creatures, 24 elders, singing one part, and then you've got the angels singing the second part of the lyrics, and then the creation singing the third part. Why does each group sing those particular lyrics? That's fun to sort through. The second question, why don't angelic beings sing the song of Moses? They sing the song of the Lamb, but not the song of Moses. Third, who are the people who will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb? And then this last one, how do we get victory over the beast? I talked about getting victory over the beast and his image and his number. But there's a powerful hint given to us. In fact, it's not a hint at all. It just comes out and spells it out for us. And that you will find in Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. Great section of of Revelation. If I'm not careful, I'll turn out doing a teaching on Revelation. I've said I never will do that. But uh, So we're going to close right there. Our Father and King, thank you so much for this amazing chapter, for this beautiful song. And thank you, Father, that through Yeshua, you have given us this dynamic melody. And Lord, I pray that all of us who call ourselves your children, your disciples, would never try to correct others that they're not singing it exactly the way we are singing the melody, but Lord, will encourage them to sing louder. And Father, I pray that all of us together around the world right now would make a beautiful chorus to you. And someday, when we all see each other at the same time, we can all sing together at the same time and hear each other singing at the same time. Lord, that's a day to live for. That's a day to die for. When every creature in heaven and on earth, every human being is joined up in a chorus of praise to you and to the Lamb and to your people. So, Lord, I pray you'd help us to focus on that day to come as it will help us to live in the day we're in now. And we'll give you praise and glory for it all in Yeshua's name. Amen.